Good morning, Impact. How are you doing? Now, if you guys would stand with me for the reading of God's Word, that would be great. We are in Luke chapter 2. That's Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 21. I think you're going to recognize this story, uh, but you all have heard it time and time again at a certain time of the year. We'll see as we go. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field. Recognize it yet? Keeping their watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around about them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. We say that again because that's key for us today. I bring, you great, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for everyone, all the people. For, what's this news? Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Like how my voice got more powerful during that part? And suddenly there was, an, there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, well, a multitude, the sky's filled with angels, and they're all praising God and saying, not singing, but saying, this is one of those things we get wrong, but it's okay to sing it, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is well pleased. When the angels went away from them and into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things in her heart, pondering them. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus the name given him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. You can be seated. Gang, let's pray and give this to the Lord because I'm hoping and my prayer today is that we're going to see this story, this very, very familiar story in a different way than we ever have. So bow your heads, close your eyes. Father, we call this the Christmas story. Some of them don't even, in some nations don't even call it that. They might call it one of many stories uh, among the Santa story the winter break story. And, and Father, for so many people, it's so familiar. It's just that, a story. God, I pray that today it would penetrate our hearts become more than that. We see every detail. As we this morning just take out a little piece of this story, one that's kind of breezed over or belittled or really just not much thought is given to it at all, Lord, and see how important it is who these shepherds were, why they were chosen for us and what difference it makes in our life. Lord, there's transforming power in this message as in all your word. We know it doesn't return void once it's spoken out. I pray for that. Fill our hearts with life-changing message in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what's that sound like, gang? That story that you just heard, what's it sound like? Anybody awake? It's a familiar story. What's it sound like? The 4th of July story, the Easter story. Doesn't that sound like the Christmas story, at least part of it? How many of you ever saw the Charlie Brown special? This sounds like what Linus says, right? And behold, Charlie Brown, there were shepherds in the field. It's, this is what he says with his little blanket. And for some people, that's all they know about it. It's part of the Christmas story that we really don't know what to do with. Honestly, it's part of the Christmas story that we'll go through and recite, and it's beautiful, and we'll put a little play together or something about it. We honestly don't know what to do with this thing. Again, it's recited in Charlie Brown Christmas plays. It's sometimes recited in little school plays. How many of you ever played a part in the Christmas story play growing up? Anybody ever do that? Anybody ever have to play a sheep? 
There's always somebody. Nobody had that? Sometimes people, and that's what you don't want. You don't want to play a sheep. You might want to play the shepherd, but if people get the sheep or the shepherd part, they're bummed out, right? And I got in the school play, a kid is excited about it. I got in, oh, nowadays it wouldn't be the school play, would it? Maybe the church play, but I have to play a shepherd. Well, that's okay. It's better than a sheep, but I have to play a sheep. The only thing worse than that is playing a tree. I don't know why some people had to, some kids would have to dress up as a tree and just stand there the entire time. But playing a sheep is no fun because we think sheep are just dumb animals that are scared of everything. And that's exactly what they are. They are kind of dumb animals that are scared of anything. And that's why we are compared to sheep more than any other animal in the entire Bible by God. That's God who did it, not me. So your argument is with him. But listen, we kind of skip over the sheep herders in scripture and their little visit to the Son of God. But I think even worse than that, we add to it, and we sort of glorify it, and we sort of retell it, even though it's simply told right here pretty basically, because we don't like it. We can't relate to it. It doesn't seem right. Here's one thing we do. Alongside the sheep herders coming to visit Jesus, what do we do? We put the wise men, we put the magi there, even though they didn't show up, and maybe some of you didn't know this, until two and a half or maybe three years later when Jesus is called the young child. He's a toddler at that time. The wise men didn't come to your nativity scenes. So this Christmas when you set it up, you need to set it up with the shepherds and everything and then put your wise men down the street at your neighbor's house on the curb because they're not there yet. They won't be there for a couple of years, their little feet taking them there. So we, why do we do that? Why would we put them there in the first place? Because again, I think that we, we think that the Son of God incarnate coming to earth should be with a lot of pomp, a lot of circumstance, should be a big party, should be a big celebration. There should be royalty, should be a blue blood affair. Not this, this, this shepherd thing. But honestly, where do we even get the idea? So we do. Some people put royalty and pomp and circumstances. They do that by the, the wise men or some people call them kings. And did you know that's not in the Bible? So where do we get it? Does anybody know? Where do we get that? Why do... Raise your hand if you have a nativity scene. Hands up. Okay. Are there wise men that came with that? Keep your hand up if you have a nativity scene. Let me see. Keep your hand up if wise men came with that. All right. Nobody... I mean, wise men came with that thing. Some of you might have thrown them out to be correct, but they're there. They came with that thing. So as a nation, pretty much we've accepted this. We've just assumed it. Here's where it comes from. Some trace it back to a little song from John Henry Hopkins. Ever heard of him? Early 1800s, we three kings, we three kings from Orient are. Want me to sing the whole thing? Because I can. That's all I know. <laughs> I can't sing the whole thing. There was other, there was other uh, songs there. But gang, I want you to get a real perspective of how bizarre that is, of how almost ridiculous that is to do that, to base a whole thing on, on, on one of the greatest, certainly one of the top two or three events in all of human history, all of history period, to sort of rewrite it and just stick something in there without any evidence or anything based on, I don't know, a song. How dumb is that? That's like listening to the 70s hit, the classic Grammy Award winning, Billy Don't Be a Hero, and making a national holiday for Billy. That's what it's like, honestly. Why do we have a national holiday for Billy? Because Billy was a hero. Everybody knows that, Pastor Rob. So we made a national holiday for him. Where'd you get that? From the song? So obviously it's huge. Hey, how was World War II? One, anyway. Uh, you know, I don't know. 
there, were, there was the British and there were the Americans and I think some French. They were pinned down on the beaches of Normandy, I remember that. And they needed a volunteer to ride out and bring them back some extra men. And that's what happened. All I know is Billy's hand went up in a moment, forgetting all the words she said. Now, she was his fiance, who apparently did not want him to be a war hero, but wanted him to come back alive. But instead, he forgot everything that she said, and he wrote down why he did it in a letter. And it's a miracle that we have the letter, because she threw the letter away. But we have the letter because the IRS did an illegal audit on Billy's conservative fiance, and that's why we have the letter today. All right? Now, ridiculous, right? But that's what we're doing. We're basing an even more important story in God's Word on something we heard in a song. Now, all you have to do is read your Bible to know that the wise men weren't there, that that's not how it went down, that the focus that night was on poor, marginalized people, was on, on the way that the Son of God came in a stable, stinky, smelly with animals, and he was placed in a feeding trough. We even have a beautiful word for that, manger. But who uses that today? I mean, if you see horses that are fed in a trough, you call it a feeding trough. Nobody says manger, but we keep it as manger. When I was growing up, I was like 15 years old before I realized that manger wasn't a word for a nice house. I thought that he was born in a manger. I thought that was a nice place. He was born in a really nice stable where you could live, and that's a, a manger's a feeding trough with grains and oats and junk in there for horses and cows and whatever, and that's where the Son of God was placed, but we don't like that. So we redo it. We retell it. Now, you can maybe not blame people a couple of hundred years ago or even 150 years ago because, honestly, gang, the average household maybe didn't even own a Bible. Didn't even own a Bible. To have a Bible is incredibly expensive. Incredibly expensive. So maybe if you had one, you had one. But most people still got their information every Sunday from the preacher. Or maybe they got it from the Catholic Church, but they went there and they let him take care of it. And so they didn't really read themselves. But the average household in America today owns nine Bibles. I've always thought of you people as above average, so you probably own more than that. Problem is we don't read it. Problem is we don't read it because we look at little details like this and we think it's not that important. But it is important. This story is hugely important. I got more out of this this week than I think I ever have. There's an even bigger and more troubling reason why I think we redecorate the birth of Christ. A more troubling reason, a, a more important reason, and a, uh, a reason that's more pivotal in, in why a lot of people go the wrong way and don't know Jesus. So get this. We don't like the way it went down. The biggest reason we redecorate and rewrite it and add things and kind of fluff it up and make it look better is we don't like the way it went down. It doesn't fit that the God of the universe would come in such a humble manner. So we figure that, that God had some bad management or faulty PR and we try to help him out a bit and just clean it up, dust it up, make it look better. We dress up the stable, we make it look not so much like a by the way, you know what the stable was? None of your mangers look like this. None of them. What was it? I've been there. My wife and I have been there. and We visited. It's underground right now because they built over top of it. Well, what would you have to build over top of? Cave. It's, it's a cave. Most stables back then, most places where the animals were, were caves. Or get this, they were houses where the people lived. Do you know a lot of the houses where common people live were divided up and you'd have your donkey or whatever animals you could afford in one side of the house and everybody would sleep in the other? Some of you are going, that's disgusting. Who would have their people, their, their animals in the house? Anybody here sleep with their dog? Be honest. 
Come on. Be honest. Higher. Higher. That's right. Strider, the terror of the universe, sleeps in our bed. Hopefully after this convicting sermon, he will never sleep there again. So we look at this and we think that we're so different. We can't relate. You're going to see this morning, we're not much different in a whole lot of areas. So we look at Jesus wrong altogether. We look at the birth wrong altogether. We, we dress up the stable. I've seen some nativity scenes that cost $1,000 to buy. The pieces and all, they're like little hummels. They're real expensive, real nice because we want it to be nice. Certainly God deserves that, but God didn't want it to be nice. He didn't. Let me ask you a question. You think God could have come with pomp and circumstances and glory and all? There's a heavenly host right there. Couldn't they have just walked to Jerusalem or beamed there and brought the party over there a few miles? Right, they could have, but they purposely did not. Purposely did not. It's completely opposite. Here's my point, and yes, I have one. Satan is going to try to get you and I to miss Jesus every chance he gets. I mean, the number one thing that Satan's going to try and do with you is get you to miss God. Now, if you embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the second thing, and I've told you guys this before, it's the second thing that Satan's going to try and do. Well, try and put your life on a shelf, right? And just make sure that you're not used. You don't do anything with your life. You know, you're kind of a fire insurance Christian. I'm saved, so that's it. That's all I need to do. But this is the most important thing as far as he's concerned, that he would drag others down with him to hell and that you miss Jesus. And there's a variety of ways, gang, think about this, that Satan does that. You can simply never look for him, right? We talk about seekers sometimes, but the fact is no one seeks after God. No one's good. No one's just. Unless the Holy Spirit draws you, you're not going to seek after God. You don't really want him. You're not born that way. You're born in sin. So you may spend your life, you just don't look for him. That's one way. Or you can look for Jesus. You can look for God in all the wrong places. Anybody agree that can be done and is done? Because this means yes, right? All right, three of you agree. You can look for the wrong Jesus altogether. Man, there's a lot of Jesuses presented. Let me give you a couple. The Jehovah's Witnesses present Jesus as he used to be Michael the Archangel. Did you know that? And he morphed like super power rangers into Jesus. He was an angel, specifically Michael the Archangel, and he morphed into Jesus. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. That's why it's a cult, not a religion. Mormons believe that Satan... And Jesus are actually brothers. They're both angelic kind of things. They rose up from human form into God's. One's evil, one's good. That's a false Jesus. Both of them are false Jesus. Not in the Bible at all. So you can look for the wrong Jesus altogether. You can look for God in false religions. You can take people's word for it without looking through his word yourself. There's many ways. It doesn't matter to Satan. I promise you. As long as you miss him. As long as you miss him. Who cares how you miss him? Just don't find him. But again, gang, my hope this morning is that we'll see a short story about a few sheep herders that are pretty insignificant in an obscure field somewhere for the incredibly important theological pivotal story that it really is. It actually makes a huge, it actually makes all the difference in the world, believe it or not, as you go forward in the book of Luke. So let's get it right. All right, ready to go? You in your Bibles? Luke chapter 2. Verse 1, and in the same region, there were shepherds keeping watch over their fields by night. The same region as what? In the same area, locale, proximity of the Son of God, the incarnate one, there were regular blue-collar workers just going about their regular routine. Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, felt it significant to say 
that where this incredibly magnificent, life-altering, transforming, historical event was going on, there was a bunch of regular guys hanging out too. I think it's weird, don't you? Why mention it? And I'm trying to get away where you guys would understand this, but that's like in the same area where the Super Bowl was being played, behold, there were vendors selling hot dogs. Let me think of that for a minute. I don't care. Get on with it. Behold, in the same area where Prince William and Kate Middleton were being wed, behold, Polly D and Snooky were hooking up by the Jersey Shore. I mean, it's just insignificant. Who cares about lower than blue collar, lower, lower, lower Jersey Shore cast? Who cares what they're doing? The world's watching Prince William and Kate Middleton get married. Why would we care what the lowlifes do? Well, gang, here's what I want you to know. Shepherds were the embarrassing reality TV cast of the ancient world. They really were. It's one of the lowest jobs. You know, you try to think of jobs today, and I'm not trying to be belittling, but I'm trying to think of how society views jobs. I can't come up with one. Wasn't there a show called Dirtiest Jobs or something? I know you guys are too holy to watch TV, but wasn't there a show like that that your neighbors told you about? And what, what's, what are some of the dirty jobs on there? What's that? Sanitation jobs, okay, garbage collecting, sanitation jobs, cleaning at the, well, this was considered lower than that. This is the lowest of the low. People don't want to do it. People didn't trust shepherds. People didn't want to be a shepherd. In fact, the shepherds, these shepherds were probably watching over the sheep that were going to be used in the Passover celebration and sacrifices, yet they themselves weren't allowed to go to it because they were considered unclean. It doesn't get any lower than this. But in the same region where Christ the Lord is being born, in the same region as greatness, get this people, there's ordinary. In the same region as sinlessness, there's sin. In the same region as white collar, there's blue collar. In the same region as freedom arrives, people volunteer to, to spend their lives in bondage. In the same region where royalty and wealthy aristocrats lived, God was choosing to go to outcasts. In the same region where there were clean and unclean, Jesus came to the unclean rather than the clean. Say that three times faster. But finally, in the same region where the Redeemer was born, the keepers of the sacrificial lambs were keeping watch over their flocks by night, watching out in a dark world for things that might compromise the sheep. Just remember that. Keep that in the back of your head. I have one main question. I want to keep it simple so we don't miss it. This, there's going to be some other ones, but let's just focus on this. Why in the world would the God of the universe make the greatest announcement in history to a lowly group of sheep herders? In fact, I want you to pause and just think. He's about to announce something he really wants the whole world to know. And the heavens open up. And there's probably millions, if not billions, of angels revealed. In the Old Testament, Elijah wanted his frightened servant to see. There was an Assyrian army surrounding them, and Elijah's real casual. And the servant is about to wet his pants. And he's going, we're doomed, we're going to be killed. And Elijah goes, no, we're not, because our army is bigger than theirs. And he goes, well, you're nuts, because it's just me and you. And Elijah says, Lord, open his eyes so he can see. And what happened? Do you guys remember this? The Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked up, and he saw basically this, that the skies were filled with heavenly warriors and angels. So he saw what was really there, but that he couldn't see. He wasn't positioned to see it. He, his heart wasn't ready to see it. He didn't have the faith to see it. But Elijah saw it, didn't even ask to see it. He just saw it. Man, I want those kind of eyes, don't you? I want to be able to see that naturally. 
Not to, have to, not to be so out of, out of cue, out of touch with God that I can't see anything until he realigns me all the time. I want to be aligned like Elijah was. That's what the shepherds saw. But how did they see it? They're unclean, marginalized outcasts. How did they see it? You get that, you'll get the whole thing this morning. How come for thousands of years, the coming incarnation of God, it's the main focus of biblical history. It's actually the main focus of the whole Old Testament. Jesus is the main reason for the whole book that we have, Old Testament included. It's all pointing forward to a time when he will come. And it ends up being what I would call a fringe event, a small, understated, poorly attended, quiet, stealth-like event. Absolutely nothing that any one of us, in my opinion, if we were there that night, because a lot of you go, if I was there, I would have acted different. No, you wouldn't. None of us, if we'd have lived then, would have expected the Son of God to come this way. And I promise you the shepherds didn't because they were scared for their lives. They basically, the word there of their great fear is that, like dead, they would have fallen over. So I don't think it's a case. I think the angel actually has power to calm their hearts because I don't, if you have that kind of fear where you can have a heart attack and... I don't think him going, fear not, is going to be enough to stop you, right? I mean, if a plane's both engines have been hit by lightning and it's going down like this and an angel appears and says, fear not, is that enough? Probably not. Smoothing the plane out and fixing the engines works better, right? So fear not, he calms their hearts and he's going to give them the greatest news in the history of the world. It's huge. Nobody would have expected it to come this way. Now look up here. And yet, this event, the way that it happened, was everything it had to be to work. It was everything that it absolutely had to be to work for you and I. Couldn't go any other way. Couldn't happen any other way. Couldn't have been a huge celebration. Couldn't have gone to the kings. Couldn't have been something that was done in Rome with Caesar. Couldn't have been all of that. If it wasn't this way, it wouldn't work. And I know you're sitting there going, I think it would have worked, Pastor Rob. Stay with me on this one. Here's one way that might help. Imagine the alternative. Instead of coming to the shepherds, what if Christ had come to the regional king? Anybody know who the regional king was in that region? Herod. Herod was a nice guy, right? Herod was not a nice guy. Unless killing your sons because somebody told you a rumor that sons, plural, hey, one of your sons can't wait to be king. What do you mean he can't wait? Does that mean he won't wait? No, no, I didn't say he won't wait. I kill him. Now you got your other son. You're trying to raise him up. Maybe he'll be king. And then he looks a little too anxious, so you kill him. And then one day you get mad at your wife, the mother of your son, so you kill her. And it, this is the kind of person he was. In fact, he killed his enemies. Constantly, if he even suspected you were an enemy, he would kill you. In fact, this is the Herod who finds out when the wise men actually do come because they say, we're looking for the king of kings, right? And Herod says, what king? I'm the king. Where is he? I want to go worship him too. Remember that? It's a Christmas story. Yes. And yet, he just wants to kill him. So he kills everyone two years old and under in Bethlehem. Fortunately, Jesus is long gone by then. So what if he'd have come and announced it to Herod? Well, we already know how that would have gone, right? Because it was announced to Herod. And Herod didn't go, you know what? I know I'm a king, but I'm ready to give that up because here's the king of kings. It didn't go that way. And it wouldn't have gone that way. How about the religious leaders? That makes sense. Why not go to the church? 
of the day. And that was the temple. Why not go to the Pharisees, Sadducees, the Zealots, the priests, the high priests? Go to them. Well, read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I think he did, right? Didn't he? Didn't Jesus go to them? Didn't he talk to them? Didn't he do miracles in front of them? Huge miracles? When Jesus did miracle after miracle after miracle in front of them, what did they ask for? A miracle. I just did 10. 11's our key number though, Lord. I mean, not Lord. I'm not ready to call you Lord. When you do 11 miracles, I might call you Lord. I mean, Jesus looked at him and said, it doesn't matter how many I do, you're never going to believe. So here's what I'm going to say. He couldn't go to the religious leaders gang because they couldn't recognize God when he was right in front of them, right? Jesus was right in front of them. He's God. They could not get there. That's just really important. They're not positioned in their mind. They're not positioned in their heart. They're not positioned spiritually or emotionally to see God. But somehow these shepherds were. Now I've said that three or four different ways. Hopefully you're beginning to pick up on it. So I think the religious leaders actually were probably the most unqualified group to point the way to God. So, obviously God chose the right group. But why did it go that way? I still haven't answered that. What can we learn from this? What I'm about to say is important, so I'm going to say it twice. By the way, whenever I say something twice, it doesn't mean that I have ADD and I forgot. It means it's important. So write it down any way you want to remember it. All who eventually miss the Savior do so because they decided to worship something or someone else. Did you get that? Everyone. Everyone who misses God. Everyone who misses the Savior. It comes down to this. They miss them because they decided to worship something or someone else. That's it. I mean, with all the religions, all the cults, everything in the world, that's it. It all comes down to that. Yes, amen. We can go home. Not. Not yet. We need to know why. Why does that happen? And, and some of you are sitting there going, Pastor Rob, I don't think that's true because in the Old Testament, you see some freaky worship. They melt down gold to make golden calves. These people, they weren't all there. And they'd worship that. We don't do that, don't we? I mean, I'll tell you in a moment, we, we worship, we are way more idols than they ever did. Way more idols than they ever did. All who eventually miss the Savior do so because they decide to worship something or someone else. Let me give you a few choices for nowadays, okay? You know, I was so excited about this sermon and going over with the shepherds and all that God told me, and I need more excitement from you. Wow. All right. Here's some of the things we tend to worship. I'm just going to list it out. Sex? Hands, anyone? No, not on that one. Pleasure? Money? Popularity? Power? Good looks? Sports? Music? I can go on and on it. But I'm looking at some of your blank stares and going, I don't worship that. I don't worship any of that stuff. I'm above that. All right. Keep going. I think you do. I think I do sometimes. And I think it's weird. I think it's bizarre. On the one hand, gang, I don't know if you realize this, but we live in the most entertained culture in the history of the world. We are the most entertained culture in the history of the world. We have more options for entertainment than any culture has ever had, any society's ever had, right here, right now in America. There's a million ways to entertain yourself. At the same time, we live in the most, without a doubt, the most bored culture in the world. We're bored. 
We have a million things that are supposed to be fun and make us unbored. Is that a word, Pastor Rob? It is now. To make us unbored, and yet we're bored. Where'd the word bored come from? Well, that comes from the ancient Hebrew. No. Actually, it comes from the Koine New Testament Greek word. Nope. It comes from Charles Dickinson. You know, when he wrote, he put it on paper in one of his books. I forget which one it was. Um, six times. Ah, what is his uh, early 1800s? I don't have that written down. Charles Dickens. Did he write a tale of two cities? Okay. Six times he came up with this word. It was an obscure word, boredom, in the Old English. And until then, nobody used it. There's no record of that word ever being used until he wrote it down. It's just, it's just a word that he had, which meant dull, unamused, I mean, just not excited about life, even if you have a lot of life going on around you. He kind of coined this concept, fascinating. Around the same time, this is actually it was the late 1800s, the Industrial Revolution was taking place. Now, hang with me here. And people began, a lot of people, the masses began to work in factories all day. Now, the jobs they had were worse than being maybe a farmer. In the old agricultural days or even the sheep herding or cattle days or whatever, people didn't say, you know what, I don't want to work this job. I'm bored with this job. I want a different job. There weren't a lot of options. Farming, you know, different types of agriculture, herding, that's, a, that's about it. Maybe baking, maybe making clothes. There just weren't a lot of options. But people had to work to survive, to work to survive. After the Industrial Revolution, a couple things came in. If you're just putting in screws over and over all day, you're going to go nuts. You're going to get bored. And so this idea of boredom got picked up on. And we thought, you know what? I need to find pleasure in life. So in the time I have left, I'm going to seek that out. Everybody's working for the weekend, TGIF. All that stuff started coming about. People moved to the cities. Plays, dramas, eventually movies. Things sprung up. Sports, franchises. And people ended up having... A surplus of time. Some of you probably sit in the pastor, so you probably have a surplus of time. <laughs> Actually, don't. All you do is get up there and preach and then golf all week. First of all, I don't golf, and if you ever golf with me, you'd know I don't golf. Um, we all have a surplus of time, all of us. Now, I know some of you are going, I absolutely do not. I didn't say that you have all this free time laying around with absolutely nothing to do. I said we have a surplus of time. It's just how are we using it? A surplus of time doesn't necessarily mean, or, or if you don't have a surplus of time, it doesn't mean you have a time deficit, okay? My question is, what are you doing with your time? And here's my answer. In modern culture, or even post-Christian modern, in the world we live right now, here's what we do with the excess time we have. I already said it earlier. We chase pleasure. Stop. Think about it. When you have time off, what are you doing? Why well, aren't I chasing pleasure? Aren't you? Shout out a few things that you do when you have time off. Legal things, please, only. <laughs> Shout them out. Sleep. Sleep? Wow. <laughs> what? iPhone? Play with your iPhone? You're not during my sermon, all right? Are you? <laughs> Go on vacation. That's a good one. Play games on the computer. Read for pleasure. Go to sporting events. Play sports yourself. Go to concerts. Go to movies. OK? 
I mean, anything else, guys? You're a creative bunch. Wow. What? What? Exercise. Wow, I should have known that. CrossFit, right? I mean, look at the things we do. We do things for experiencing pleasure. By the way, it's not bad if some of you are going, I don't want them to rip on the... I'm not. I'm not ripping on experiencing pleasure. We do things we ex that we'll experience pleasure with because it's... This is really deep right here. Get this. Pleasurable. We do things in which we think we might experience pleasure because it's pleasurable. It's not rocket science. All right? And there's not many people out there going, I'm going to do this because I know it hurts. People don't do that. I'm going to do this because I think it'll give me a little bit of feeling and it'll give me some pleasure and I like that. From legitimate good things to twisted, bad, evil things. We seek after pleasure. That's what we're doing with our surplus of time. Think about it, gang. We've had things invented in the last 10, 20 years that should free up more time than the history of the world's ever had time. And yet we feel like we don't have time. Well, that's because we're using it, chasing the little momentary highs that pleasure brings. Now, some of you are still looking at me like, I don't get it. So let me give you a few examples. We worship certain things. Okay, here's the difference. God says that, or God's word says he invented these things. I mean, God invented sex. It's right there in Genesis 2. We twisted it, right? We warp it. We twist it. God invented grapes, and God talks about wine, and he actually, in the whole Old Testament, everything doesn't say anything bad about it. Actually, in the whole Bible, he doesn't say anything bad about it, except not do be drunk. Don't be drunk with wine. It doesn't say you can't drink it. But we'll take that and we'll twist it. And how do you twist it? We know that it can give us a pleasure. It can give us a high. So let's just do it more and let's just abuse it. We're after that pleasure. Why doesn't it work, gang? Why doesn't the pleasure high work? Why doesn't it satisfy? Please hear this, gang. Hear this. It doesn't work because you and me, we were created for something more. We were created for something more. We weren't created for just momentary pleasure. Have you, ever, have you ever longed for something that you, you didn't know how to satisfy the longing? Let's think about it. I, I know this is kind of, it's a little off track. It's a rabbit trail, Robbie rabbit trail, but I mean, just you have a longing and you're like, and you try things and it doesn't fill the longing. You ever had that ever? Anyone? Am I alone? See some nods. Yeah. Do you think your pet poodle Rufy feels that? Fifi? Think Fifi sits down and longs for things she just does not know? No. And then Fifi has a longing for food, and there's food, and you feed her, Fifi's satisfied. If you have a little pet duck, you know what they want to do, a little, little ducky? They, want to, they long for the water. Put them in the water, they're satisfied to swim around in the water. But humans have this longing, and they keep chasing after these things and extending and twisting and abusing it because they can't quite get that longing met. And you know why that is? Because that longing, and I know there's a kind of a juvenile way to say it, but it's true. There's a hole in your heart and it's shaped like God and if you try and shove something else in there, it doesn't fit. And it will not fit because it's bottomless. The only one that can fit, fill that kind of void is an eternal God. So where do pleasures become wrong? Get this. Well, they become wrong when you worship them. What are some things we worship? Sometimes we'll worship food. Sometimes we'll worship sex. Sometimes, like I said, we'll worship entertainment. 
And again, none of these is evil and bad of themselves, except they have a tendency to do a couple things. Here's one. People have a tendency to do a couple things with these gifts from God. One, distort them and twist them into something they were never meant to be. We're great at that. And two, put them on the throne of your heart where those gifts will soon turn into gods. We have a tendency to worship the creation instead of the creator. You do that here and you'll miss God. In fact, everybody around the vicinity, everybody in the world really, the typical people and what they were expecting from religious to royal, from blue bloods on, would have missed the Messiah because they had no idea spiritually how to look for him, what he would be, their heart wasn't ready. I wish you had more time to explore this. We don't today. There's so much more to this passage. It just kept growing this week. I will touch on a couple things. There's the fact that God so often chose shepherds in the Old Testament and other lowly people to do great things for his kingdom. People like Abraham, who was a herder. David, the great king, was a shepherd. Marginalized seventh son of seven sons of his father, Jesse. The prophet Amos was a shepherd. Jesus himself is called the great shepherd. He's also the lamb of God. And we sang this morning, he's also the lamb that was slain. We mankind, I said this earlier too, often compared to sheep in God's word, like it or not. In fact, bluntly, here's why. They are slow, defenseless, and stupid. That's why we're compared to them. Over and over, not once, not twice, not ten times, over and over and over again. Again, we don't have time for all of that, so here's what I want you to do. Take the last maybe 10 minutes we have together. Take a, we'll go deeper. Take a hard look at these shepherds and their encounter with God in the specific area of worship. I'll put you on track. Maybe this will help. How many of you remember Pastor Renee Joseph? Remember him? Yeah, keep your hand up. If you, anybody go to Haiti here? All right. Well, I, when I first went down there and met him and we were deciding whether, we're, and by the way, I was talking to him the other day, and we're going to hopefully get those going again. But I remember when I had first flown down there, it was not too long after the huge earthquake and everything had happened, and I'd flown down there. I had heard things like, you know, there's revival going on down there. People are worshiping. And when they gather to worship, the worship services are like four to five hours, which I loved, because I think that's completely right. They should be. I think the sermon should be four, and the rest should be one hour, and that's fine. But even me, I can't go long enough for a Haiti worship service. So I was baffled by that. And it's not in one or two places. Everywhere you go, the worship services are long. And I remember when I asked Pastor Renee, how is that? Anybody want to know what he said? I'm going to tell you anyway, but you want to know? He said, I'm going to say it like he does. There's nothing else to do. There's nothing else to do. Why do they worship that long? I thought it was going to be some deep spiritual reason because honestly, spiritually, they're more in touch than Americans. Spiritually, they're deeper. No, he said, there's nothing else to do. So we gather and we start experiencing real worship and pretty soon there's nothing else they'd rather do. As entertainment and things began to come back online in Haiti, they're still spending long periods of time. So interestingly enough, it took an earthquake and immediately 300,000 people were dead and over the course of a year, nearly a million people are dead from disease and everything else and their injuries and amputations and all of that, for them to turn to their creator and see him as he is. 
So little entertainment in places like Haiti, yet so much satisfaction. Don't forget that. So little entertainment, so much satisfaction. Here in America, it's the opposite. So much entertainment, so little satisfaction, right? So many options, so much entertainment. Everybody's bored. My family and I went on a mission trip about three years ago to the, to the Mayans in the Yucatan Peninsula. And the most striking thing about them that everybody in my family said was, I mean, they've got nothing. They live in huts. They literally have nothing. They've got like one pair of clothes that they wear for every event. And you would not believe the joy. And these people, you would not believe it. No matter what village, and we went to many villages, they come around. They're so happy, they smile on their faces. The biggest conviction I had coming back was there's almost nowhere you can go, unfortunately, especially sometimes church, and see that kind of joy. And they don't have anything. So little entertainment, so much satisfaction. Why is that? Let me say this again because I think it's important. I don't want you guys to get the wrong idea. I'm not saying entertainment and even the things I've mentioned are bad because they're not bad unless we twist it into sin. But if you worship them, it means death to your soul. They're not bad. They're little activators. They're meant to have us experience pleasure and know that there's something more and hopefully keep seeking. But we don't. We stop and we say, I'm going to take this little momentary pleasure and I'm going to just jack it up and get as much as I can out of it. Twist it. Tweak it. Add to it. Do something and keep getting that high off of it. But they were never meant for that. Earthly pleasures never meant to satisfy us completely. Only to arouse pleasure. Ultimately, what we need can't be found and fill in our stomachs, or sexually, or through power, or through popularity, or through amusement, even though they're all good things. I've said this before, and I'll say it one last time, and I won't say it again. Why? Why doesn't that work? And this is a beautiful thing. Because you and I were created, and we were meant for pure, unadulterated joy. Think about that. You weren't meant for pleasure. You weren't even meant for happy. I mean, even we've got our own declaration of independence and the pursuit of happiness. That's not all it's cracked up to be. You and I weren't really meant for happy, happy. You were meant for joy. Can you tell the difference? Can you see that there's something different? Happy and joy? Does anybody, raise your hand if you know you've experienced pure joy. Okay, that's, that's probably less than half of you. And that's good. It's about what I expected. Pure joy. You know there's a difference. But if you experience joy, it's out of this world, literally heavenly. It's funny how we'll take things. Let's take food, for example, and, and we've distorted it. We want it to be that. Oh, you wouldn't believe You've got to try this restaurant. It was simply heavenly. Oh, it tasted awesome. It was out of this world. <laughs> We're trying to make food a heavenly experience. You can say a million more sayings about it, but we do that with everything in life. It's found in Christ alone. So let's take the last, I promised you 10 more minutes, let's take 12. I'm going to take the shepherds, and we're going to take basically one, the last couple of verses here. We're going to break down what we read, and I'm going to tell you the application. I'm going to tell you why it worked with them, why it was important that they saw it, and what you can do yourselves to experience great joy in the Lord. All right? Enter the shepherds, Luke 2. First thing they had was an experience. Write it down. They're all E words. I'm going to make it easy. Experience. And the angel of the Lord, here's their experience. 
The angel appeared to them, glory of the Lord shone about them. They said, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Unto you is born the city of David, a, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Okay, would you, everybody agree that's an experience? Pretty cool one? I want that one. So they had this great experience. They had basically a worship experience unfold before their very eyes. It was real enough and it was passionate enough and it was obviously motivating enough. I dare say most of us, our entire earthly lives are not going to have an experience that cool but it was huge enough to motivate them on to the next stage that's necessary. <clears throat> By the way, here's why I think it worked with them. I think because it's huge anyway. I think it would work with a lot of us. But here's another reason. It's the Pastor Rene theory. With the shepherds, why was this huge? Because day is nothing else to do. I mean, they're just with sheep all day. So the contrast was unbelievable. They're going to say, I want to pursue that. That's way better than this. It's way better than this. But some of us don't believe that. We think what we can get out of earthly pleasure is way better than that. <clears throat> By the way, there are some people, what I'm about to say, some pastors would disagree. They'd be wrong. What it is, some pastors would say that lost people can't worship. People don't know Jesus can't worship. Some pastors will say they can worship. I think it's crazy to say they can't worship. It's nuts. Of course they can worship. I don't think they can worship the true God unless they know him, but they can worship. And so can you. I'll go a step further. They can and they do. And so do you. Every one of us worships. We worship all the time, every day. We're always worshiping someone or something. But it's only the worship of Jesus Christ that can transform us. So they have this observation. They observe an experience that's incredible. But it's not enough. In fact, real quickly, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 6. If you don't know where that's at, let me just read this for you. Hebrews 6, <clears throat> beginning verse 1. I'm going to show you an experience that's not enough. Paul, I believe, wrote Hebrews, and he's saying this to the Hebrews. Let's leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a simple, you know, sort of baby kindergarten foundation of the, the first things, repentance from dead works and faith towards God. Let's move on. <clears throat> let's, talk, let's go from the resurrection that saved you of the dead and Jesus and to eternal judgment, all that, and let's move on to deeper things. For it's impossible, now listen to this, for it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they have again crucified the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Okay, here's what I want to say about that. Here's some words that were in there, okay? Enlightened, tasted, shared, tasted again. Sounds like at the very least an experience, right? These people had an experience. But do you notice that the things in there are only getting started? Like enlightened. When you're enlightened, you're just, like, how do we use that? Well, if you don't know something, somebody will say, well, you know what, let me enlighten you, right? What does that mean? Let me give you the facts. That doesn't mean you embrace the facts, right? That doesn't mean what they told you you're going to go, then I believe because you said it. It just means something's been delivered. It's like having a great food and you, can I try a bite of that? And you taste it. But it doesn't mean you ate it. I spit it out. So all these things are just kind of trying, it's kind of tire-kicking stuff in here. So apparently you can have an experience, apparently you can experience God and not be saved. So it's not enough. 
So they move on. <clears throat> I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Good news, great joy, all the people. Would you guys agree that there's different levels of good news? Here's one. I own a little bit of Apple stock. Two shares. It's not enough to even get an iPhone. But if somebody called me up and said, hey, Apple stock's on its way back up, I would say that's good news, right? Because it's kind of been going the other way lately. That's good news. Would I throw a party over that? No. Would I Facebook about it? No. Tweet? Nothing. It's just good news. I'm going to give that a one or two on the good news scale. You with me? My son got his driver license last week. Yep, it's kind of scary. He's got to tell me where he's at. He's got to check in when he drives. Now, what if he goes out and he's supposed to check in and a couple hours go by? And I begin to really freak out because he's not checking in. I can't find him and all that. And then finally, he remembers and texts or calls from where he's at, not while he's driving, but from where he's at, and tells me he's okay. Okay, that's good news. It's kind of private. I'm, gonna, I'm probably not going to throw a party for that. I'm going to celebrate. All right? It's good news and it's bad news for him. He's now going to get his license taken away. He's not going to drive until he's 40. But it's a mixed bag. I would give that like a five. That's a, I mean, it's a huge thing. Let's say there's nuclear war possibility, okay? Let's raise the stakes here. The Russians and the North Koreans, they've fired a couple missiles. But, you know, we've got our, our defense shields, so we shot them down. Tensions are high. The Russians now are saying, we're just going to unleash every missile we've got, and there's no way to stop it unless we give them back Alaska. <laughs> and so we give it back, and the world is saved from certain doom. You with me? That's a nine. We're probably going to throw a party. Probably going to party like it's 1999. We're gonna, I mean, it's going to be a huge celebration. And some of you are going, but Pastor, that's not a nine. That's like a ten, isn't it? No. Because that's salvation from certain earthly doom. I think to be a 10, I think to reach great joy, it's got to be salvation eternally. To be the joy that's talked about here has to be that huge. So he brought these shepherds that could recognize it. Good news that would result in great joy that's for everyone. Not just for the exclusive, not for those that can afford it, not for the religious, for everyone. And they didn't miss it. So that's the first thing. Second thing is there's got to be an encounter. There has to be an encounter. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. So if you see the baby Jesus, well, you encounter God. There has to be an encounter with God. When they saw the Messiah, they encountered God. Now, what would they do with their encounter with the living God? Now, they're no longer watching worship, right? They're no longer just experiencing it. They've encountered God. Now, they're going to worship. And they do. Number three, embrace. Embrace. It's a little different. What's our indication that the shepherds embraced Jesus? And the shepherds returned from this visit glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. They've changed. Their conversations change. Now they're worshiping and praising God, who they didn't worship or praise at all before. There's something different about them. And finally, the last thing, effort, action. Faith without action, James tells us, is a completely useless dead faith. And the shepherds returned, glorifying again the same verse, praising God for all they heard and said, the worship changed them, gang, from the inside out. They'd never be the same. Listen, not because they just experienced God, Okay, but because they embraced God, believed, trusted, embraced. 
So let's close with this. Back to the same question. Why the shepherds? They were humble enough to trust in God. Why didn't you just say that at the beginning, Pastor Rob, than the whole thing? Because you had to see why. They were humble enough, simple enough, and they realized their lowly position easy enough. So when the Holy Spirit moved in their heart, they just, they just moved. Gang, there's room on the throne of your heart for one God. One God. And you stick anyone or anything else on that throne, and you can't find Jesus. You can't find him. What happened that night with those shepherds? They not only dethroned anything else in their life, they didn't have much to dethrone. They put Jesus on there, they're transformed, and they're going to go viral and tell everyone about it. That would have been better than telling Herod, right? He didn't want anybody to know. He just wanted to kill him. That would have been better than telling Caesar. He wouldn't have wanted anybody to know. He would have killed him. It would have been better than telling the religious leaders. They didn't want their position taken. Do you see this now? Had to be that way. Had to be that way for the coming of the Lamb of God. Let's pray. Father, I know there have to be some here today that have tried other things or other people on the throne of their lives. There has to be, God. Maybe there's people that accepted you and embraced you, Lord, and now they're trying other things. They, they feel like they're adopted. They feel like they're safe from hell, but they still want to worship other gods. And so certainly they're not experiencing the great joy that should come from the good news. God, my prayer is that no one would leave here today with anyone or anything else on the throne of their heart but you. Lord, bring us all to that simple place. And Lord, for those that have more, for those who have their life together and there's just nothing to worry about currently, no sickness, no money worries, no job worry, no anything, Lord, convict them twice as much, Lord. It's going to be twice as hard for them. Help them to see themselves for who they really are without you and to embrace you as Lord and Savior, for that's all that will save them, Lord, and transform their life and bring great joy. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. See you next week.